Today we'll be discussing clowns, both clowns in comedy as well as hospital clowning. Send in the clowns. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment and question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic from medicine and health and grills me on that topic. But today we have an overarching topic for the show, and that is clowns. Later on, we're going to be speaking about hospital clowns. But first, I'll be asking Ali about an overview of clowns as a form of entertainment. But before we get to this, Ali, I want to check in. How are you doing these days? Oh, just great, huh? It's the pandemic. What is there to possibly be not super pumped and excited about? Well, listen, I finally got around to seeing uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League movie. That's something, eh? <laughs> that is good. Four hours? Four hours of my life. I'll never get that back. It wasn't a pleasant experience? No. You know what? I, I'm joking a bit. Actually, it's much better than the original Justice League movie, which by all accounts, I think was a mishmash of Zack Snyder had to leave because his daughter unfortunately committed suicide. So then he had to leave. Josh Whedon stepped in. Josh Whedon has his own set of problems. Pretty much a despicable human being, if you read the media reports have, about I him. I have, I have, yeah. It was a movie made by committee. So this one at least has a clear vision. Whether you like that vision or not, and whether you want to spend four hours in it, I don't know, but at least has a clear vision. I did see a tweet that was both funny and sad recently. I wish I could attribute it to the person I can't, you know, I just sort of saw it quickly in passing, but it was one of those white people be like, watch this movie. It's four hours long. You may have to watch it twice just to see what the motivation of the director and creator was. White people also be like, why is the lead black? Which I just thought... It's good. Yeah, a bit of a double standard there. A bit of a double there? standard and actually a huge double standard, but also it's a hell of a demand on people to watch a four-hour movie. It's incredibly self-indulgent. And if it's not good, that's even worse for everybody. I had a similar experience watching Tenet, which was Christopher Nolan's movie that came Ugh. out. Did you see it? Don't get me started on Tenet. You will not like the rage. I think it was like somewhere in the between 30 and 40 minutes in. I want to say 40. It makes me sound 10 minutes smarter, but it was probably more like 30 or 25 minutes. And I was already confused. And there was no getting back. There was no getting back. And I went with two friends who were, we went during the period where theaters were still open. So it's like practically a private viewing. It was a Tuesday. So it was like a cheap night. And it was still, I think, 12 of us total in a 350 seat theater. And I hated that movie so much. Like Christopher Nolan, like I had to watch Dark Knight again the week after just to be like, no, no, no. I like Christopher Nolan. I don't have to hate everything about this person. I just need to hate this particular project. Well, it's funny because I watched it. I waited for DVD. So I watched it on DVD and about 10 minutes into the movie, I'm like, I can't understand what they're saying. So just I'll put on the English subtitles and then I could understand everything. But the fact that you have to put on the subtitles for a movie in your own language and people like, no, it really works best on a second watch. Right. The movie's two and a half hours. You I want know. me to watch it again? I mean, I don't know. This is what I had with Breaking Bad. People are like, have you watched Breaking Bad? And I was like, yeah, you know, it didn't grab me after the first two seasons. I watched most of the episodes of season one and two. And people are like, no, but 
the third season is when it really starts. I'm like, what do you want from me? I gave a show two seasons of my life. What do you want from me? And of course, there will be a day when I go back. I love Brian Cranston. I respect everything that guy does. I probably will go. But at the time, I was getting even more infuriated. I gave it two seasons, not an episode, not two episodes. I gave it two seasons of my life. Give me a break, people. Come on. Well, I know that's your opinion, but it's easily the most insane opinion you've ever had. I mean, Zack Snyder's Justice League, Tenet, they're definitely controversial. Breaking Bad, I don't understand where your head is at. It's the best television show that's ever been on. But I don't know if we're going to solve that today. Perhaps a future episode. We'll go back and do a Breaking Bad rewatch. We're going to talk about, as you mentioned off the top of the show, clowns today. I was actually stunned to hear that there's clowns in hospitals. I didn't know that. I didn't know that was a thing. Well, I know yeah. about candy striping, you know? This is just that on steroids. Yeah, and we, we call them volunteers now, not candy stripers, but that's fine. Okay. Uh, <laughs> in fact, this is where I want to start off with because I was surprised from the opposite point of view because we were talking about comedy, right? And when we were talking about how we're going to do this podcast, I was asking you, so we can talk about stand-up comedy. We can talk about sketch comedy. We can talk about improv comedy all different forums. And you said, yeah, we can also talk about clowning. And I was like, what? What do you mean clowning? So maybe just let's start at the beginning, like clowning as a form of comedy. I just didn't even know that existed really. Yeah, I didn't know either. It was about, I don't know, maybe about eight years ago. I'm with my friend Massimo, hysterical human being, very funny comedian, very, very physical in his comedy. What's that? Nice guy. Nice guy. I met him a couple of times. Yeah. Nice guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. You've met him a bunch of times as well. So he does his set and, you know, he has a thing where sometimes for the first two minutes of his set, he doesn't speak. He just like smiles and goes, I know, I know, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 very beautiful. He doesn't really say any jokes. Just people are laughing at his presence. Anyway, he goes outside to have a cigarette after his set. And then he came back and he told me about this. He goes, dude, I thought I was going to get in a fight outside. Some guy is standing outside. They're also having a cigarette and says to me, you should be a clown. And Massimo was like, excuse me? Yeah, you should be a clown. And Massimo was like, do you have a problem? Is there something? Did I upset you? Something? He goes, no, no. So I teach clown at Humber College in Toronto, and you would be a great clown. And Massimo's like, wow, okay. He First, he thought he was going to get in a fight. Now this guy's offering him to uh, help him get a degree in something. So I was like, that's crazy. You can teach people clowning? Honestly, my ignorance was, uh, was high on clowning. I thought, you put on the wig, you put on a red nose, big floppy shoes, and, and you're a clown. You're as good a clown as any other clown. Some people work at it a little bit more and some people less, but clown, as I looked into it, has a very, I would say, rich history. Mm-hmm. Very, very rich history. If people ever want to see, you know, if you look up Commedia dell'arte, which is basically professional comedy that came out of Italy, a lot of the roots of this sort of, you know, miming and clowning and all this kind of stuff, a lot of it comes out of there. But You can go to different websites and some people say there are nine types of clowns. There are four types of clowns and then people, three types of clowns. I'm going to break it down very simply. I'm going to quiz you, Asif, on what type of clowns uh, fall into these categories. So number one clown, we're going to talk about the white face clown. 
And no, the second one is Sounds. not going to be black. Say, be black this is black. sounding very inappropriate. <laughs> no, no, no. This is the oldest of the clowns traced back to that commedia dell'arte, medieval court jesters, right? right? They would paint their face very white. That was the big thing so that they were brighter. Their face was brighter. And then they would have a lot of color, a lot of colorful, and they would be very cheerful. And it's the your famous white face clowns would be like a know-it-all, a straight man setting up situations. So can you think of uh, who would be a white face clown? He's fed you. He's fed you since you were a child. Golden Arches? Come on. Oh, I was thinking Chef Boyardee, but then he doesn't wear the whites. Hilarious. <laughs> God, disgusting. Your mother did not feel it. feed you Chef Boyardee. Ronald McDonald is a classic white face clown. Bozo the Clown, mm-hmm. classic white face. The second type of clown is called Auguste. It's August with an E. Auguste clown, which is a mixture of white face and then another clown called Tramp. This clown, basically, it's got the opposite of the white face as far as the look goes. A lot more red and flesh tones, the large ball-shaped nose, very big mismatched costumes like oversized necktie, small hat, this kind of stuff. And this is a person who mediates conflict with funny results or is often the brunt of jokes, screws things up. You give them an assignment, they mess it up like, You can practically hear, you know, some kind of like, what an idiot. So famous Augustes are Coco the Clown or Cookie the Clown from the Bozo Show. I don't know either of those, but I do, uh, I am familiar with this Auguste Clown, the hapless clown. The third clown is the Tramp, uniquely American. That's a very uh, North American construct. Came after the Great Depression, originated with these hobos. Right. So they have like the sort of the soot on their face. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say blackface because that's not what this is. The soot on their face. From riding the railroads all the time and that type of thing. Right. Yes. They're the brunt of the joke. They're the one who, who get their butt literally kicked. They're the one whose face gets wet from a squirting flower. Mm-hmm. Right. Beard of stubble, ruddy nose, fingerless gloves, all that kind of stuff. Right. So you have various types of tramp clowns. But. Can you name two tramp clowns? Two tramp clowns? There is one that I remember, and it was specific probably to living in Quebec or Ontario during, when I was a kid, there was a a TV Ontario, which was our our public broadcasting, like PBS in the States. They would have little things to learn French. So you could learn French by watching some of these shows. And there was a clown that just like this, he was like a a hobo. I I don't know if hobo is politically correct, but we're using that term. So he was this hobo type clown and his name was Saul, Saul the Sad Clown. Saul the Sad Clown, buddy. You nailed it. You nailed it. I was hoping you would say Saul. I grew up with Saul. Saul was like a second sadder father to me. No, that's not true. But I did learn a lot of French. I learned a lot of French from Saul. And my favorite skit that he ever did was he goes to a restaurant and he sits down and the waiter's a bit puzzled because this sad clown is there. And he says in French, you know, what can I get you to eat? He's like, well, I'll start off with some bread and water. And then he brings him bread and water. And then he said, like, well, what else do you want to eat? And the clown is like, nothing else. This is fine. And he's like, well, you can't just have bread and water. But he's like, isn't the bread and water free in the restaurant? And the waiter's like, yes. He's like, well, that's what I'll have then. And it goes on like that. That's good. Did that give you some ideas for your future? Or uh, was he a hero for that? That's a weird story to remember. 
He wasn't a, a second father, but I was like, I always wanted to try that in a restaurant. Never did. <laughs> Never did. Thank God. And then the other tramp clown that I thought you might mention is Charlie Chaplin. Mm-hmm. Probably the most famous tramp clown. Some people say he he goes between the Auguste and the tramp, but his look, his clothing, his mannerisms were very much a type of tramp clown. So these are three different clown categories, I should say. But there's another category that I came across in research and then in talking with people that is far more interesting to me than the clown, and that is the anti-clown. The anti-clown people may know as the buffoon, the le buffon from the French. Mm -hmm. I'm going to explain to you what a buffon is, and then you tell me who a buffon is in modern day society. If you can't guess, then I didn't do a good job here. So basically the clown is sort of needy. The clown depends on the audience for laughter. The clown tries to make people laugh. The audience laughs at the clown. The buffoon laughs at the audience. So the buffoon also may not just be there to amuse, but also to provoke, to unsettle, but always the audience is the joke. And the buffoons don't have any vulnerability like the clown does. So a friend of mine told me this story about, you know, medieval medieval France, started in medieval France, that moved from there. It was called the Feast of Fools. It was one day a year where the marginalized and the downtrodden and impoverished could come into the main city. And it was called like a topsy-turvy day, right? Basically, however low you were, you could be, you know, you could be a false pope or a bishop or an archbishop. Obviously, the medieval church was completely against this, but this was like kind of a festival to keep the rich in check, So it was like this ritual. You were sort of parodying the wealthy and the clergy. And so they were making fun of people. So however enraged they were at the rich, they would poke fun at them. And so this became a big tradition over the years. It never had a name, but then eventually it found a name, a courtesy of somebody named Jacques Lecoq. Now, I know you want this to be a clean, clean podcast, so you may have... You may have to delete that later. Anyway, he's a big name. Founded in 1956, Jacques Lecoq. He had the L'École Internationale de Théâtre in France. And he is a very big name in clowning and acrobatics and mime and all this kind of stuff. But he was the one who coined the term of the le bouffon, the buffoon. So the buffoon makes fun of you at your own expense. And often you don't even know you're being made fun of. So Asif, who is a disciple Right now that we see, we've seen for the last almost two decades, if not more, he hails from England. He's, I think, Cambridge educated. When you first mentioned this, the first thing I thought, but he's not alive right now. I would say Andy Kaufman was absolutely Andy Kaufman. Absolutely Andy Kaufman. But right now there's a guy, he has a movie in theaters. Well, not in theaters, but he's a movie out right now, which is a sequel to his original. Big Mama's House 2. (laughs) Buddy, it's Sasha Baron Cohen. Right, of he's course. The buffoon. He, is, yes. he was called by a, another master of this world, is a guy named Philippe Gaulier. And Philippe Gaulier once said to Sasha Baron Cohen that you are a buffoon. And it was the greatest compliment mm. that Sasha Baron says he has ever received. So in Sasha Baron Cohen, whether it was as Ali G, whether it's as Borat, whoever, he's always making fun of people and having fun at their expense. And the rest of us laugh at it, but the person being mocked has no idea about it. 
So the buffoon, if you want to read about this buffonerie, I find it very, very interesting. And Sacha Baron Cohen himself is also somebody who I find incredibly interesting. How deep in character he has gone to learn about this way of uh, mocking people. But yeah, he studied under Philippe Gallier, and Philippe Gallier called him, you are a buffoon. And he said, I was shocked. But that was one of the few people whose respect he sought, and he got it. So Sasha Baron Cohen, that's a great example. I didn't think of that off the top of my head. But what about other examples? You know, I mentioned Andy Kaufman. Anybody else that's out there? Mr. Bean is a pretty good example. Now, I don't know about his training, but he doesn't have any vulnerability. He is always confident. He is always, you know, I haven't watched a ton of Mr. Bean. I actually used to sit there in contempt of my sister and father who used to laugh maniacally over Mr. Bean. And I was like, seriously, this, this unsophisticated stuff. But as you study it more and you look into what these guys do, there is a real art and a training to what they're doing. And they're deep in character. They are so deep in character. And there is something, I've always said this, I can appreciate a guitar solo, but somebody who studied guitar at some level, can really, truly appreciate and respect a guitar solo. So the more you learn about these things in some way, at least read about them, you can see exactly how much respect they deserve in command. And uh, I never thought that when I was a teenager, definitely. And I guess there's probably a continuum. Like There's physical comics to clowning. So I was thinking about John Cleese, right? You know, yes. a master of physical comedy. And is he on that spectrum then? Or would some people say he's a clown? Or I don't know. Monty Python, absolutely. Monty Python, Mr. Bean, these are people who were doing, who were very much, I mean, they were more sketch, Monty Python, but they were absolutely still clowns at some level, right? They were obviously having fun at the expense of other people or in sketches where they were having fun at the expense of somebody else. And so just as we're winding this session down, I have a question for you. There is a much hated group of people in the world (laughs) who are called mimes. And yes. where, but where do mimes fit in with this whole clowning thing? Are there those white face clowns we talked about before? Or? You're not going to like this. There is one website that refers to the mime as an elegant clown. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> Known, of course, for not speaking, but emoting through body language and facial expression. So somewhere between mime and clown lies Mr. Beam, right? Mm-hmm. Mr. Beam, I just called him. A beam of light that is Mr. <laughs> Bean, because he also doesn't speak and is just a little grunt and a little shimmy here and there, but that's pretty much it. So yes, your favorite, the mime, also known as an elegant clown, falls under the white-faced clown. Now, all this discussion of clowning might have gotten you excited. Maybe you, as a listener, you want to get into clowning. You want to learn more about it. I mentioned Jacques Lecoq. He has that school in France, L'Ecole Philippe Gaulier, Philippe Gaulier, under whom Sacha Baron Cohen trained. You have an online program called Udemy, like Academy, but Udemy. You can enroll in that. All you need is an internet connection, and you too can start clowning. Indiana University at Bloomington, where my cousin actually went to school, has a clown college. You can be a clown science practitioner. You can learn how to make people smile, laugh, cry, laugh so hard they cry, and (laughs) advanced techniques. And then in Haifa, Haifa University has something that kind of is a good segue for you and I and what we're going to talk about. They have a program that they offer called Medical Clown Therapy. So I would never have known about this. I didn't know that this existed. It's a program that focuses on drama therapy, nursing, psychology, performing arts. 
and students are taught to use humor to nurse and nurture. And if that doesn't hit the heart of what this podcast is, not just this episode, but this entire podcast, as we ask, is laughter the best medicine or a good medicine? I mean, I don't know what else is. Okay, Asif, introduce me to this world of hospital clowns. I know very little, and I've only learned about it very, very recently in the last few weeks as we started talking about it. How does this whole thing work? Well, I must admit, I didn't really know a lot about them either when I first started practicing medicine, but I started my residency at a children's hospital, and that's where I first got exposed to it. But if you actually take a look back at the history of it, and there's a really great article by Peter Spitzer. It's in a journal called The Lancet, which is a medical journal published in 2006. And he talks about clowning in hospitals. And it's really not a new development. If you look back many, many centuries ago, in Turkey, the dervishes who were responsible for the well-being of patients, they said they first fed the body and then they used their performances. We know all about the performances of the dervishes to feed the soul. So this kind of combination, as you're saying, and, and our tagline is laughter, the best medicine, right? Mm -hmm. It kind of goes back this performing arts with healing. Then you can even look back in the early part of the 20th century. There's a French magazine called Le Petit Journal, and it had on the cover a drawing of two clowns. I work at a children's hospital ward in London. So we know even in the early part of the 20th century, this was being enacted. And we spoke about Patch Adams in a previous episode, and the real Patch Adams, again, we're not talking about the movie, but the real Patch Adams, a young doctor in the 70s, began doing this clowning for hospitals in Virginia and kind of developed it in North America and made, had rise to prominence. That's true. I actually, I did see Patch Adams, so I guess I did kind of know about clowns in hospitals, but for me, he was a complete aberration with this unique crazy, off-the-grid way of thinking. But it's, uh, yeah, I guess it's prominent. All right. And I thought it was a one-off too, right? I didn't really think about it. But in fact, there's a whole field of study called gelotology, which is the study of humor and its effect on the body. There's an Association for Applied Therapeutic Humor, which was created in 1988. They talk about therapeutic humor, and the definition of that is an intervention that promotes health and wellness by stimulating playful discovery expression or appreciation of the absurdity or incongruity of life situations, which I think that's an abstract concept. But these days, yes. and dare I say, maybe what we're trying to do with this podcast is shed some light on some of those things. So I think there is maybe a lot about it. And as you know, a lot has been written about the power of humor, the healing power of laughter, etc. Sure. Now, I am thinking back to when my dad was in the hospital, which was a number of times when I'm just thinking about like how cranky he was sometimes. You know, we'd bring him some food. His hospital food would arrive, actually, and then he'd be like, I'll eat that. I won't eat that. And there's no way in hell I'll eat that. You know, he'd point at some mushy peas and then I would have to go get him like a smoked meat sandwich or something. But I remember like a man who was pretty good spirits, getting pretty cranky in the hospital during his extended stays. And I can imagine somebody like my dad or somebody in a worse mood punching a clown right in the face. So is it really just for children? Are we, or is it just everybody? I guess I have a bunch of questions. First of all, what kind of people go into clowning? Are they doctors at all? Are they medical professionals in any way before they get into this? 
you know, they're usually not physicians. I'm sure there are some like Patch Adams, but that's not the most common. Usually they're professional performers. They could come from a clowning background, as you just talked about in the first section. They could be actors. They could be mimes. They could be magicians, maybe musical theater type people. Mm -hmm. There are some healthcare professionals who go into it, nurses, other allied healthcare, et cetera. Okay. That's good to know. And then how do they get selected? I'm thinking of how you were saying that you applied for teacher's college, did not get in, but did get to become a pediatric neurologist. Is it like a very selective process where somebody might be incredibly qualified to do many, many things, but just not hospital clowning? That's just not the, you know... In a lot of places, especially Australia and the UK, I believe they're called clown doctors, even though they're not MDs, wow. uh, whereas in North America, we call them hospital clowns. And so, yeah, you know, it's an audition process, just like you've talked about your auditioning in the past. You have to audition because it's not just your acting ability or your improvability. Improvability is, is so important in this case, but can you deal with the hospital experience, right? You're going to be seeing sick children most of the time. And can you do that? And usually they'll hire somebody on and they may give them a bit of an internship or a job shadowing, right? Where you get an idea and see if it's a good fit. And a lot of times they don't work every day because once they're eventually hired on, it could be draining work, right? You're in character all day, again, mm. dealing with especially children who are quite sick. And there are what we call continuing education for these people as well once they're hired on. So they have conferences, workshops, just like you have for acting and just like I have for medicine. Wow. Okay. All right. I'm getting some respect for the profession. But it's sort of on that note of respect, what do doctors yourself, for example, what do you think about uh, hospital clowns? Like, do they get in the way? Do they help? Do they, is it like kind of like a, the nurse and the doctor relationship where you sort of assist each other and help each other fill holes where the other can't? What is your thoughts on a hospital clown? I think when you first meet them, it's a bit, can be a bit off-putting because you're surprised that there's a, a clown. And I always give this story. I've worked in a couple of different children's hospitals. And in the first one I worked with, which was the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, they have a rule for the clowns there. I had met several clowns there, but they're not allowed to talk. The clowns I work with at my current hospital in Ottawa, Ontario, the clowns do talk. Wait, not allowed to talk to the doctors or not allowed to talk at all? No, not allowed to talk at all. So the oh. example is, you know, when you're with the kids, they will just mime everything. Again, we talked about mimes before. But even there's an example where I get into the elevator and it's late towards the end of the day and there's nobody else around. There's no kids in the elevator with me. It's just me and the clown. And I'm like... Yeah, you know, uh, crazy weather these days, huh? And they're just like, they shrug their shoulders and they're like, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm like, <laughs> okay. So they never talk. They never break character until they're out of oh their God. clown makeup, which is a lot of dedication. My dad would have punched that guy in the face for sure. Wow. That is, no, I have so much respect for people who go deep in character, whatever it is, whether it's a stand-up comic who embraces a character and goes deep into that character in one joke. I mean, I have so much respect for that. So obviously for somebody who is in character for an entire day, that is, that is obscene. Now, what about you're the science guy, you're the evidence guy, right? Is there evidence that clowning has helped? 
Yeah, there is some evidence for hospital clowning. And we talked before about how you can look at systematic reviews, where you look at all the published evidence. And there was a good one from the British Medical Journal just recently, a few months ago. And they found that the studies show that children and adolescents who were in the presence of hospital clowns, either with a parent or without... And sometimes it's very useful without, right? If their parents can't be present for whatever reason, to have that clown there is very useful. But in those patients, they reported significantly less anxiety when you measure it using like objective measures of anxiety, like rating scales, and improved psychological adjustment. And some studies show that children who had chronic conditions, they showed that the hospital clowns could reduce stress, fatigue, and even pain and distress in some kids. So it definitely is helpful. And I think based on this evidence and our day-to-day experiences with clowns, most pediatricians, because again, it's the predominantly in pediatric hospitals, we, we like having the clowns present and we really appreciate what they can provide for the children. Okay. You know the way there was this nagging thing that you had to ask me about mimes because mimes are so hated. There's something nagging me right now, which I thought you would bring up and you haven't yet. There is a real, genuine <laughs> fear of clowns that exists in the world, right? There are people who are scared of clowns. There are children who cry as soon as they see clowns. How does that factor into all of this? Like, you could have a child in a hospital bed already in a terrible place, and then a clown pokes their head in the room and goes, hi, and the kid is like, ah, could this get any worse? How do you measure <laughs> when and where a clown is going to do good or do some harm. Yeah, I mean, there is this fear of clowns. It's called cholerophobia. Oh, it has uh, <laughs> it has a term even, it, That's apparently. Yeah. And there's reasons why this phobia exists. Clowns it can sometimes, they have these heightened facial expressions with makeup and things like that. But if they have a smile drawn on, but they're frowning, like that kind of sends your brain mixed messages. Mm-hmm. And people also don't like the unpredictability of clowns. <laughs> they have a flower. Are they going to give it to you or are they going to squirt you in the face? <laughs> and if it's like the Joker, is he going to squirt acid in your face? You know, there's many different things. If you're Batman, it, it becomes more complicated. Right. Yeah, But when it comes to kids, I think that cholerophobia is a bit of an adult thing, to be honest with you. Very rarely have we seen an issue with kids in hospitals. I mean, I'm sure there's it happens every once in a while, but it's certainly not as prevalent as people make it out to be with the evil clown memes on social media and things like that. And I think it comes down to how they interact and just you you see the kids and I've seen my own kids when they're in the hospital, when they've seen the clown come towards them. They're just so happy. Just the smile it brings to kids face and, and the interaction. So I think it's really how they act. And even if kids are a bit put off at the beginning, once they get that interaction with them and it kind of puts them at ease, I think you really see it. So I, I think maybe there, in some kids, there could be some trepidation at the beginning, but usually that's overcome pretty quickly. Okay. And so these are clowns who are fully dressed head to toe in the classic clown clothes, floppy shoes, yeah, big absolutely. red nose. Okay. Okay. So then it's it's the same phenomenon that I've seen in my children and so many children when you see some sort of a mascot mm-hmm. or a big oversized, you know, bear or whatever is kids just gravitate towards that and they want to hug the, you know, whatever, the mascot of the Toronto Marlies or like... It's kind of unanimous. Kids all either stare with intrigue or they just run right towards them. They want to hug these big furry creatures. And I guess it does. 
Exactly. And and the best thing about some of the clowns that I've seen, and like I said, the one I, I work with now at my hospital does speak to kids is not a mime or silent. And so she'll ask me, and she, she often does this, she often makes a joke at my expense, in front of the kids sometimes, which I yeah. think is hilarious. She'd oh, be like, oh, okay. doctor, do you want a brownie? And I said, yeah, sure, of course, I li- love a brownie. So she pulls out a brown letter E and hands it to me. Like That's great. So, you know, in companies, you often have this concept of like the person who started as the in the mail room and then work their way up to CEO or whatever, that's like one of the best employees because they've seen the top to bottom of how an organization runs. Is there some benefit that medical students might get from working as clowns for some period of time? Or would it just be like they would respect that job? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, there may be medical schools that do this. I do know the medical school that I'm associated with, the University of Ottawa, actually has what's called a third year elective. So you do your medical school in the last two years, so third and fourth year are usually the clinical rotation. So you're on the ward and you rotate through neurology and obstetrics and uh, emergency and things like that. But they actually offered an elective rotation, so you could do it voluntarily or not, to follow around the clown at our hospital, the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario. And so our clown, who I've alluded to before, is named Molly Penny. That's the clown name. The real person's name is Ruth Cull. Wait, are you allowed to give her uh, identity up? I, I think so, because there's a great article on the CBC, which is our national broadcaster here, which talks about this elective and this person. Okay, they already outed her. Okay. So, <laughs> so Ruth uh, was an operating room nurse at CHEO for 28 years. So she's one of those people who has the clinical experience. And then she moved into this clowning. And she comes in three days a week again. It's, it's a hard job to do every single day. And she comes in three days a week. And she's Molly Penny. And she, again, talks to patients and children, puts them at ease, everything we talked about. Our university decided that we will offer this as an elective to medical students. So we had students who come for a few weeks, and they learn all about it. They choose a name, they put on the clown makeup and the shoes and the nose, everything you said, and they follow around and then they learn to do the tricks, how to put kids at ease. And you can imagine, right? Because especially in pediatrics, kids are nervous. They're in the hospital. They don't know what to expect. They maybe never been to a hospital before, never seen me in my clinic before. We have all the instruments, all the testing things, the white paper on the examining table. This is all new and sometimes scary for kids. To have that ability to know how to put children at ease, and it's not like we're not going to draw blood or give them an immunization or maybe something, even a more painful procedure. That's still going to happen, but to, to know how to put someone at ease in preparation for that, and then afterwards, how to distract them, get their mind off things, cheer them up, it's such an important skill to learn. So I think it's great that they have this They've had this elective in the past. Obviously, a lot of stuff is on hold with COVID these days, but the goal would be obviously to have this continue once COVID's over, if possible. I love this idea of, hey, you see that paper on the operating table? Watch me make a dinosaur out of the paper. It's The whole game is distraction. The entire well, game is distraction. The examining table, I mean, we turn that into a coloring page every single day, right? That's I a little it. trick, right, that we always do. It. But again, and, and clowns do that all the time as well. So definitely, I'm glad we talked about this subject because I think it's an under-examined area of, of medicine. It's really medical care as well, right? We talked about mm-hmm. the evidence. It's really under-examined. So I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it today. It's good. I know from my perspective, I'm definitely going to do some coloring 
at my doctor's office the next time I'm there and there's nothing they can do about it. I'm going to be like, I heard about this and I'm allowed to do this. And that's going to put myself at ease too when my doctor tells me I have gout or some similar thing. All right. Well, good episode. Gave some respect to the clowns. We sent them in. We gave them some love. That is it for today. I'm going to tell you that you always ask me if I have something to promote, Asif, and I do have a book that I've spoken about before, but the book continues to be something that's coming out in the fall. Is there bacon in heaven? We just we just agreed on the uh, the cover the other day. Very happy. Very happy with how it looks. It works. And that's it. That comes out in the fall. And besides that, standupali.com is where you where you can reach me. And also where you can reach us. Asa, why don't you tell people where they can submit comments or feedback and give us stars and likes and so on and so forth. Right. You can send us an email at drvcomedian at gmail.com. Tell us what you liked, what you didn't like about the episode, any suggestions for future topics, and then reach out to us on social media. We have at drvcomedian on Twitter, on Instagram. And the most useful thing you could do is to subscribe to our podcast, either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe, leave us a five-star rating and review. It really helps us out. Uh, We'd really appreciate it. All right. We'll see you again soon. Bye. Bye.